Good morning, and welcome to episode 641 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. How are you? All right. We are continuing and approaching the end of our podcast team preview series. Today's team is the Seattle Mariners. In the second segment, Sahad of Sharma will be speaking to Mike Curdo, who's the voice of the Tacoma Rainiers, the Mariners AAA affiliate, and a former Baseball Prospectus annual essay author. But today we have the reigning, defending Seattle Mariners (laughs) Baseball Prospectus annual essay author, Patrick Dubuque. He is an editor at Lookout Landing. He writes for the Hardball Times. Mostly he is trying to fill the void in his heart where not graphs once was. Hello, Patrick. Gentlemen, hello. So I wrote this thing at the end of the regular season where I tried to statistically figure out what the most exciting season was, the most exciting regular season. And I used this method, which is suggested by Dan Brooks, actually, of looking at the total cumulative change in playoff odds over the course of the season just day by day how much the playoff odds ebbed and and flowed and waxed and waned and so forth and the mariners by this method showed up as the most exciting team in baseball because they finished a a game out of the playoffs and they were in contention the whole time and there were swings up and down did it feel like that to someone who was watching the Mariners? Did they feel even remotely like one of the more exciting teams in baseball? Well, they were certainly the most exhausting team in baseball, it felt like. <laughs> um, what's interesting is, as I'm speaking for all Mariners fans, as I now am able to do, you, you could believe every time they flopped, and you didn't really believe every time they came back. So <laughs> uh, after 13 years now of, of playoff failure... It didn't. It up till the very end. It felt like, especially with a week to go, they were out by eight or nine games. They weren't, but it felt like it. And the fact that they even made it to that very last game is still mind-boggling to me. I'm trying to. What year was it that the Jack Sorensic thing happened? Was that the? Was that just last winter? Was it the winter? No, it was two winters ago, right? It was the Jeff No, because it, it happened at the beginning of the winter. Um, yeah, it was last winter, wasn't it? It was just last year, but it was in October or November, right wow. after the season ended. Huh. So, so is that like forgotten? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the funny thing about the Mariners' ownership is that it it is it is a bedrock. It will never change. Um, the names change, but the feeling of corporate Marinerdom is the same. And Jack Zarendic just kind of fits into that. Uh, it, what's interesting about Zarenzik is that he changes his stripes so often. Um, so, you know, when he began, it was all defense and speed and Sean Figgins and, and Franklin Gutierrez. And then he decided that he would have the nine strongest men in baseball, just, you know, one through nine. Uh, and now suddenly it's two platooning outfielders, uh, two platoon outfield positions and a platoon first base, maybe. Although one of those guys is in both those roles. I'm not sure how that works. So, he's willing to adapt, which I, I suppose is an admirable trait. 
unfortunately, none of that adaptation has really worked yet. So it's hard to give him too much credit, but at least he's trying. You mentioned the Mariners corporate whatever, corporate whatever you said. What did you mention? You said something. Uh, I can't remember now. It's basically that, that Nintendo of America owns, or Nintendo owns, uh, the Mariners, and they've, the, the ownership, it's, it's not, it's not a Detroit Tiger situation where you have an owner who wants to win more than anything. And it's not a, a Loria situation where he wants money more than anything. It's kind of none. It's, it's not, there is no personality. Huh. It's just kind of, they want to make money, and if they win, they can, but they never seem to commit or fall on either side. Of those extremes, and uh, so it's hard to kind of point anything to them except this kind of slow, oozing mediocrity that has been happening for ten years now. That's interesting. So, do, do you think that like is there a move that hasn't been made or a move that has been made uh, during your time following the team that you kind of ascribed to the ownership that you not not necessarily specifically to the ownership but to the nature of the ownership? Um, what I would say is that well, what people would point to is the Nelson Cruz um, misfire from last year when they the tried uh, to... second one this this the the, the one year eight million dollar one year one. eight million not, right? ownership the, yeah not yeah. the five year seventy five million dollar one that Ben and I have expressed some skepticism about uh, how could you um, <laughs> no it's uh, that one was one where Jack Sorensic had the offer on the table ownership felt that it was too risky. Uh, even given the the lightness of the uh, the contract, just because he was coming off of his uh, his steroid issues, and uh, and so they failed to pull the trigger, and of course it turned out to be disastrous in the sense that Kendris Morales re became a Mariner. <laughs> and anything that could have prevented that would have been wonderful. <laughs> um, however, I would say personally that that what would be most characteristic of the franchise would perhaps be the Kyle Seeger extension. Simply because this is a team that it, it's been bad for a long time, but there's always been three or four guys on every team, no matter how terrible, where you could buy their jersey. You could be, you could feel safe owning a Felix Hernandez jersey. You could feel safe owning a Seager jersey or an Ichiro jersey, and the, they would stick to those guys. They always wanted to have a few faces that the fans could identify with and that could they could root for, even though the team itself wasn't necessarily worth rooting for all the time, and. So they give out these long contracts to these players, and for the most part, those have actually worked out. Like they, the contracts they failed to give uh, that Zarenzik, in particular, has failed to give. Lavesi succeeded every time, um, but Zarenzik failed to give his contracts to Hamilton and Pujols, and and um, and all of the ones that they couldn't get to come to Seattle all all have had their problems. Whereas the extensions they've signed, while never being the brilliant Longoria style extensions have all been pretty satisfactory for everybody involved, including the fans. The running joke that Jack Zarensic covets power hitters or low OBP sluggers, is that fair? Is that based on past years? Is it based solely on Nelson Cruz? Or is it public statements he's made? I mean, is there is there a pattern of acquisitions that really support that conception? Yeah, there's a few. Um, Mike Morse falls into that category. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, last year, um, the man with no knees, what Corey Corey, Hart, Corey Hart, right. Um, there, there, there's been a pattern to it. There certainly has been a willing, it just, I'm not sure it's a a, total exclusion, everything else, 
but it certainly seems to be something that he covets more than perhaps many other general managers. I'm looking at this 2010 roster, by the way, and I'm imagining a fellow like you who who did buy a jersey, say, once a year or every three years, and, and already had this, the, the Etro, and already had the Felix jersey. And I'm trying to find what jersey you bought on this roster. And, and t- tell me if I'm getting close. I have it down to, to three. I figure it's got to be either Eliezer Alfonso, Jose Lopez, or Adam Moore. Am I, do you have one of those in your closet? So, no, I do not. So the, there's, you know, I'm not necessarily representative sample here because I, am, I appreciate the ironic jersey. Um, so if Robert Person had ever played for the Mariners, I would own that jersey right now. Just uh-huh. have a jersey with the name Person on the back. Uh, of those, I'm trying to look it up as we speak, and I'm going slowly. Um, the best investment would probably be a Willie Bloomkiss jersey, right? Because he's <laughs> going to be a Seattle Mariner for, for life, for his life and our lives. <laughs> for all lives. Yeah. Uh, to be, all right, full disclosure, to be perfectly honest, I do own a Sean Figgins jersey. <laughs> wow. That I bought right after the, he was cut uh, for $10 <laughs> off, the, off the team store rack. Um I feel like it's, he might. I feel like he might actually give you his Mariners jersey. That was not a fun thing for him, was it? Game worn. Oh, uh, um, I, yeah. I mean, you couldn't. You probably couldn't. You probably couldn't find them now. I think they've all been burnt. But yeah, like, like sometimes you've got to celebrate the badness of a team. You've got to. You've got to really. Jerseys can be protest votes. They've got to be ways that you can communicate with your fellow fans that you you share this bond. And so I personally think a Figgins jersey is a fine choice. Mm-hmm. I'd go with the Jose Vidro jersey, I think, just oh. from the, the Jose Vidro DH years. Too soon. <laughs> uh, Milton Bradley, the Milton Bradley Mariners jersey. <laughs> so last, uh, going back to last uh, winter, last winter there were three wobbly chair GMs, Depoto, uh, Alex Anthopoulos, and, and Jack Z. And all of them had successful years, and, and none of them seems to be on a wobbly chair right now. So, like, I, I do actually, though, have a sort of a hard time figuring out where the Mariners front office is these days. Um, ESPN recently did their big analytics thing where they ranked every professional sports team uh, by how, how in they were on, on analytics. And the Mariners was like... I think they were kind of right in the middle, and I, I wasn't sure whether I agreed with that one or not because it seemed like uh, they had purged their stats guys a couple years ago, but maybe they replaced them with new stats guys. I don't really know. I don't know if it even matters. But, like, what, I, guess, I guess what is, like, what is on, on Jack Z's resume right now under skills? Like, like, what would you say is his defining ability as a front office runner? Well, it's probably not his person skills. Um, I would I would say that right now the, the the current upswing of the Mariners right now is basically dependent on his ability to draft. You have a lot of players who are high draft picks who are reaching that first year of arbitration, uh, and they're all kind of coalescing. The first wave, like Montero and Smoke, they're gone. Well, Montero's still there technically, but. But you have Zunino and Ackley and Miller and these draftees that are all, they're all there and they're all flawed. Like none of those guys is, is the ideal player other than strangely Seeger who was assumed to be a utility infielder. 
but they're all kind of culminating here at the same time. And if they can, if he can get enough out of those draft picks, it can kind of be an Amaro situation where if you draft really well, it can forgive a lot of sins. Whether it'll forgive enough is is another question. It is rare to go all in and then go out again. And I don't know how much they have actually gone out. You go to any sabermetrics conference and there are three Mariners representatives there. But but at least the, the perception of them is that they were very loudly and publicly studying these things. Tony Bongino was you know going on the radio to talk about how you calculate war while he was a member of the front office. And it was this very sort of ostentatious we are into stats now. And I don't know, is there an analog for a front office that kind of got in and then got out again? I guess there's like De Podesta and post-De Podesta, but that was a change in regime where this is the same regime, just with a, a different level of enthusiasm for it. It seems possibly unique in that, you know, every front office has been getting in to some degree, and few of them have, have gone the other way after getting in. I wonder if it's just a matter of longevity that that uh, maybe other GMs would have done this if they had gotten six years mm-hmm. and Zarenzik has somehow gotten six years. I think the the popular uh, accusation, I think what what Jeff Baker, I think that's part of what he brought up at the time, uh, was that the idea was that Zarenzik knew that stats were in. Right. And so he knew that's what his bosses wanted to hear. And so he was willing to go with it. And he did go with it, and Sean Figgins happened. And mm-hmm. it happened so badly that he suddenly just decided that he was going to be himself, and he wasn't going to listen to those other guys anymore. And that's when the purge happened. I do think they still have guys. I, they, I mm-hmm. know they have guys. And it's, it's one of those things where I find it almost useless to, to even consider what's going on since it's so secret. But I just I have a feeling that there are guys, and it's just a matter of how much each GM is willing to listen to their guys. And I wonder how much he is. It kind of reminds me of the Seinfeld episode, The Engagement, where George is looking at the happy couples and he goes and runs and gets engaged to Susan. Then the episode ends with him unhappy, trying to get out of the engagement already. Maybe it was a little like that, or maybe not at all like that. It's an unusual progression for a front office in this day and age. So you mentioned the the Seeger extension. I think probably a lot of the people listening to this podcast think that was a perfectly fine extension. Then there are other maybe casual fans of baseball who couldn't really tell you much about Kyle Seeger and were perhaps surprised that he got that many dollars. So sell Kyle Seeger to that person. <laughs> um, Kyle Seeger is probably the worst person to talk about because he's so uninteresting. Um, <laughs> he just... Basically, every you could probably look at his annual comments for every year, and they just get twenty percent better and twenty percent more glowing <laughs> every time. Every time we decide, okay, no, he's actually a little better than we thought, but this is it. This is the peak, and then he peaks a little more, and it, and he just, you know, this has to be the 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 top, right? I mean, he was an all star. He was a you know, five win player. He can't be any better than this, but that's what we keep saying. I'm. I'm he has. I mean, seriously, though, he can't be any better than this. This is, this <laughs> yeah. is it. A seven-win player, by all yeah. Well, and it, it, part of it is, oddly, uh, he's gotten better and better at defense. Um, he was actually considered to be kind of a second baseman, maybe. Kind of a half-third baseman when he came up. And he just kind of improved in that way that every player claims they're going to improve and makes us not believe any of our stories about people improving. 
he just worked at it, and he's now a really good third baseman, theoretically. And that's that's uh, it's hard to believe, but so far it's it's worked out. So you mentioned the the three flawed uh, draftees uh, who are all flawed, but also not entirely flawed: Mike Zanino, Brad Miller, Dustin Ackley. A year from now, which one of those will have uh, erased the flaws, or which will we think of as the the least flawed of them? None of them. Um, None of them. <laughs> this entire team is very flawed, and that's what makes it so interesting. Um, every It seemed like every player on the team had a half a great year last year, and they couldn't agree on which half to do it in. And so, and they had such terrible replacement players. Uh, Stephen Romero, Craig Kendris Morales, um, Andy Chavez. All these players that they tried to plug in were all complete failures, not even not even replacement level. Um, so what Zarenzik did, his his main move, and probably I have to give him credit for this, is just to basically spackle a bunch of one to two win players over the roster, so that at least when we had these slumps, uh, there would be someone decent to be there instead. I think of those that we list, uh, it's hard to say. They're all they're all so wildly inconsistent. Probably Miller, although that of course is probably the least popular answer. I don't think he's the best shortstop in the American League, but um, I do think that he can do enough both offensively and defensively to make up for those shortcomings also on offense and defense. How's the park play these days? Is it still as ridiculous? It's not as ridiculous. Uh, the problem is that you can move the walls in as much as you want. Uh, it's it's really the air that, uh, that kind of kills the offense, especially early in the season. The marine layer basically just kind of shuts down offense until mid-May when Seattle gets really nice and people should visit. But uh, it is—it's—it's it's not Petco or any or even close anymore. So, what was the average Mariners fan's reaction to the 2014 version of Cano, who hit lots of ground balls and not so many home runs, but was still really, really productive? Otherwise, was there disappointment, or were people looking? past that and adjusting for the change in parks or looking at his on-base percentage or all of the things about what he did that were still really valuable. I think everybody was pretty pleased. Um, I don't think, I think that people were a little disappointed, especially early. Uh, he kind of picked it up as he went along. But part of what was nice about Cano is that he was consistent. Even Seeger had a, had a slump to begin the season last year. And Cano seemed to be the only hitter in the lineup who was pretty solid all the way through. And that was very appreciated. Um, I don't think they expect him to reach those peak Yankee years. 15 to 20 home runs is probably just fine, given all the other things he can do. And is this going to be a big year for Paxton, Walker, both of the above, either of the above? I would love it to be. I think that uh, last year, Paxton, it's interesting that Paxton kind of outperformed his minor league numbers and suddenly just showed up and, and he had an ERA below two for a large part of the season. Uh, Walker, in the, on the other hand, was the much better prospect, and he struggled. They both were hurt at the beginning of the year, but it seemed like Walker took a lot longer, kind of messed up his mechanics some. Um, the optimism has switched back around now, where there, people are optimistic about both, but Walker, especially with his strong spring that no one should believe, um, Walker is looking like he is the guy that everybody hoped he would be again. Uh, the question will be whether they can both stay healthy. I'm kind of jumping around here, but I remember writing very glowing reviews of the Mariners' activity at the trading deadline last year. And 
by all rights, given where they ended up, you would you would think if someone had told you at the trading deadline that that they would do what they did aside from what Austin Jackson did, you would have thought that that Austin Jackson would have been enough to get them that one game that separated them from the playoffs. That seemed like a smart move at the time, and he could not have been much worse. Are you optimistic about 2015 fresh start Austin Jackson? I'm not very optimistic in general as a person, but uh, Jackson is the is the worrisome spot on the offense. Not necessarily for himself. I do think he'll bounce back. But uh, the problem is that if he doesn't, there is nobody in the organization to fill that spot. Uh, your backup center fielder is your part-time right fielder. And if Jackson gets hurt or if Jackson hits 125 or something for April, uh, dominoes start to fall. Because it, this team, everybody... It's very interesting that everybody's backup is another position starter. Um, your backup first baseman is your starting left fielder. Your backup center fielder is your starting right fielder. And other than Ruggiano and Wright, your your backup center fielder is James Jones, who I don't want to bring up again okay. in this conversation. I won't bring him up again. Uh, please, let's not make that happen. Um, or, of course, there is the alternative, which is uh, Willie Bloomquist, who is everybody's backup. Um, if, if Brock Holt is the, uh, is America's backup, then Willie Bloomquist is, uh, is Kafka's backup. (laughs) The lingering sense of dread at the end of every Death Star. (laughs) Um, Save that for next year's comment. (laughs) I don't know if I can say more bad things about Bloomquist. Um, but yeah, Jackson really needs to do well, uh, for the team. Just because he is at the part, he's playing the position that'd be the hardest to replace. They'd have to look outside the organization. All right, and I think this is the last thing. Um, it's long been a uh, an accepted truth of this podcast, uh, even though it it maybe isn't true. Uh, that uh, a team that gets exceptional bullpen performance in one year uh, probably can't count on it the next year, and therefore, if that was a big part of your success, you might actually suck. And uh, it was a big part of the Mariners' success. They had, the, I think, the second-best ERA from an American League bullpen in the bullpen era, in the 19 post-88 era. Uh, it was really good, and it wasn't really good with players who had long track records of being good or who had been invested in a lot. It was just a bunch of guys who were like generic relievers who all had the summer of their lives together and learned lessons and fell in love. So are they going to regress a lot? Is that uh, like six wins I can just lop off right off the top? I think that's a worry because I don't. I think that in Seattle, everyone is going to assume that that bullpen will be just as good next year. It's hard not to because not only were they so good, they weren't. They weren't thirty-year-olds that all had their careers. They were all twenty-three-year-olds that had their careers. Most of them in their first or second season, and so they all looked brilliant. Carson Smith, Dominic Leone, uh, all these guys just appeared on him or even Brendan Maurer uh, when he, he was a, a terrible starter just rotten and as soon as he moved to the bullpen threw a slider and then suddenly he, he had a two ARA and uh, everyone just kind of wants it to be the same I there has they have to regress um, the 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 obvious spot is of course for Fernando Rodney who you can see just forgetting to throw a strike for a few weeks but they have they have a closer in Danny Farquhar who really would have been the closer for the team if they hadn't decided to just go out and buy another one instead. So you can lop off three, I think. 
I think I think it's something where some something will happen. And it's interesting because McClendon didn't really have to manage the bullpen that much since they were all so great. So it'll be interesting to see what will happen with him once he actually does have to start juggling some people. I have a last question after the last question. You wrote in Felix Hernandez's comment that everything Felix did was an incremental improvement over what he had done before. And I know this was a subject that Jeff Sullivan returned to roughly every other week looking to see what impact Mike Zanino was having on Felix Hernandez. Do you credit that incremental improvement to Zanino? Was it such an obvious difference over the defensively challenged catchers that Hernandez had been pitching to prior to last year? It really has to help. I mean, they it's it's amazing. The jump from, from Olivo slash everybody else to to Mike Zanino is just such a huge swing that you have to you have to give him credit for it exactly how much I couldn't say but it's it's the first quality defensive catcher that the Mariners have had in in years and it's it's so strange (laughs) all right so tell us how far they get this year how many wins what does it get them okay so I actually do know what Pakoda says um so and and I understand why most people agree, and Buster only thinks they're going to lose the World Series this year, which is flattering. Um, however, as stated, I'm not an optimistic person, <laughs> and so I'm going to say that uh, that Jackson gets hurt, uh, so does Paxton, things fall apart. There's no there's no help in AAA. Uh, McClendon has some problems once he faces adversity for the first time. The team goes 80 and 82. Zarenza gets fired. The fan base loses faith in the city, and uh, everything is a disaster. It's a dark timeline. I'm I'm a Mariners fan. But Willie Bloomquist survives to play in 2016. Willie Bloomquist plays 50 50 games at first base. (laughs) With a wins above replacement of 0.0. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks, guys. You can find Patrick Dubuque on Twitter. And I don't know how to pronounce your handle. How should I pronounce your handle? You pronounce your handle. I don't know. It's my last name backwards. I've always called it Equebin. E-U-Q-U-B-U-D. Sure. Okay. I've always called you Patrick W.K. at Jason Wojciechowski's uh, assurance that that is the correct way to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. I'll accept it. It's fine. Okay. All right. So after the musical break, you will hear Sahadev talking to Mike Curto. Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm Sahadev Sharma, associate editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Mike Curto, voice of the Tacoma Rainiers, and we are going to preview the 2015 Seattle Mariners. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate you giving me some of your time. No problem. Uh, happy to help you out anytime. You know, the, the Mariners over the years, they've been uh, hyped in previous seasons. Uh, I, I I, I can't remember the exact year, but it was. I know they had traded for Eric Bedard, and I remember they were the hot pick to make the playoffs. And from what I remember, they the things did not go well that year, and uh, it was it was pretty much a disaster. But uh, 2001 was the last time we saw them in the playoffs, and since then it's it's been a, a bit of a drought. But last year they they weren't bad. They they you know made a little bit of a run, and people thought they had a chance. Is this the year that drought breaks? In your opinion? 
I think there's a pretty good chance that it does break this year. I mean, they, they finished one game out of the playoffs last year. It got down to the last day of the season. They had a chance for a, a tie uh, for the final playoff spot if things broke their way on the last day of the season last year. It didn't happen. But they won 87 games. And then in the offseason, uh, they made the moves to try to fix the holes that they had last year. And they did that without any big costs. They didn't have to give up any huge parts in order to get the guys that they think are going to fill the holes uh, to make them a better team and, and move them across the 90-win threshold. So, you know, all, all signs point, point up right now. Uh, they, they haven't had any major issues in spring training camp, knock on wood, and it looks like they're, they're full, full go, uh, healthy, and ready to contend this year, and it should be an exciting season. Uh, definitely, and and something that could uh, be exciting with this team after Fernando Rodney, it looks like there's there's some talent in that bullpen, uh, it, but they're not not a lot of big names, so people may not realize just how much talent there is. Is there? Am I right in thinking that this could be a pretty special bullpen when when things are all said and done? Absolutely. Uh, last year, they were depending on how you looked at it and what rankings you were looking at, they were generally first or second in terms of uh, the quality that. It, you know, the performance of their bullpen uh, up there with Kansas City. And Rodney had a special season last year, 48 saves. Uh, you know, I think he only blew three saves all year. And it's, it's hard, to, you know, he, he's up there in the age category. So I don't know if he'll be able to duplicate that, but he, he was terrific last year. And then all of the other parts of the bullpen uh, are younger and they're guys who, have, who who really had big seasons last year. Danny Farquhar has been a revelation, a right-hander who's striking out over a batter per inning, uh, getting uh, ground balls and, and limiting hits. And he had a tremendous season last year, and he's a guy who kicked around from organization to organization. He was passed along the waiver wire like four times in a year uh, before finally getting a chance with Seattle and making the most of it. Uh, they had uh, Yoervis Medina, who has is a Mariners prospect who signed as a teenager out of Venezuela and was always this mystery man. Like, who's this crazy, this guy with a crazy name who is on the 40-man, they put him on the 40-man roster when he was in A-ball, and then he had a, a horrible year as a starter, and it was like, why are they wasting a 40-man roster on this part, on this guy who had a terrible season in A-ball? But it turned out they were right. He has great arm strength and good stuff, and once they moved him to the bullpen, uh, he really took off, and he was solid last year. Uh, Carson Smith came up late in the season uh, last year, September call-up. I don't know if he's going to make the opening day roster this year, but he's a guy with an electric arm, 95 miles per hour, kind of a drop-down, nearly a sidearm release point, has all kinds of run on his fastball, and you know he's waiting in the wings. They've got Tom Wilhelmson, a former closer, now as a setup guy with the addition of Rodney last year, so they're just really strong in the bullpen. Uh, the only opening they have in spring training right now is for the second lefty in the bullpen. Uh, Charlie Furbush is the number one lefty. Last year they had the veteran Joe Bimel who left as a free agent. So right now they're looking at some options with uh, a guy they took in the Rule 5 draft named David Rollins from the Houston Astros. And then they have one of their own products, a uh, pitcher named Tyler Olson, who finished last year in double-A. And he was a starter in double-A last year, and he got the invite to spring training camp. They've used him out of the bullpen, and he's been terrific so far in the Cactus League. So he might have actually make the team, although I think uh, that uh, the Rule 5 guy, Rollins, probably has the edge right now. 
It seems like uh, Lloyd McClendon's going to have a few platoons in place. Uh, he just uh, he, he mentioned that Ackley and Weeks uh, possibly may platoon in left field. Uh, you got the platoon at shortstop, right field. Uh, how do you see these things shaking out? Are they just going to be straight platoons? Does Lloyd like it like that? Is he is he a guy that enjoys you know the, the having that platoon advantage, so to say? I. I'm not real sure about his personal preference because last year he didn't really have any true platoon opportunities. And you'd have to look back at his years with the Pirates, which I'm not real familiar with, to find out if he was really big on platoons then. But uh, for this year, he's got some that are are just set up for him to do it. In right field with Seth Smith and Justin Ruggiano, that uh, both players acquired in the offseason to try to fill an outfield hole. And it looks like they're going to go straight platoon there. Then the acquisition of Ricky Weeks, which I think surprised a lot of Mariners fans and followers. They got him at a bargain price. I think it was $2 million for one year. And they have Ackley playing left field right now. Of course, he's a left-handed hitter. Weeks is, has learned left field during spring training. He's crushed lefties in recent seasons with the Brewers. So you have to think that's setting up uh, as a true platoon as well. So I think there's probably going to be two of them on this team uh with the rotation you know obviously felix hernandez set at the top iwakuma you feel comfortable right behind him uh, two guys that I, I you know they've taken interesting paths uh, with james paxton and taiwan walker walker was the really high pos- prospect top 10 guy uh, he's battled some injuries paxton uh, everyone picked apart his flaws he seems to have kind of emerged as a guy that everyone's jumping on a band the bandwagon with and he may be the the breakout guy this year and walker's kind of fell off due to the injuries and maybe some mechanical issues what are the expectations for the two of them uh are people maybe uh, giving up on walker a little too quickly I think the expectations from the Mariners' front office point of view are high for both of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paxton has only been slowed by injuries in the last calendar year, but in 17 big league starts in his career, he's had nothing but success. So I think they're very very much looking forward to getting 28 to 32 starts from him this year and having him be uh, a key member of the rotation. In fact, I think they're going to put him in the number two slot just to kind of go right, left, right, left in the rotation. So a lot of his, a lot is expected from Paxton. Uh, Walker, as you mentioned, is an interesting case because he had shoulder problems that knocked out his spring training last year, and then uh, kind of came. Uh, they, they they came up again during the season last year. Tried to come back and had to shut down a rehab game at our stadium in Tacoma, which was kind of scary. We thought it was. Uh, potentially a serious injury, but it turned out he just kind of had some stiffness. They slowed him down a month. So uh, the Taiwan Walker saga didn't really end until the middle of the summer last year when he was finally able to take the ball every five days. But once he did, he showed the potential to be a uh, towards the top of the rotation guy, you know, throwing 95 to 98 miles per hour with good stuff and, you know, trying to improve his breaking pitches. But He's had a great spring training. He has said since day one his goal has been to, to, to make the make the opening day roster and make the opening day starting rotation. He seems to be battling uh, the left-hander Rowenis Elias, who had a tremendous rookie season last year kind of out of nowhere. So uh, one of those two guys is going to win that number five slot with the Mariners. And I think the odds are on Walker right now just because – his ceiling is high, and if he's healthy and if he's had a good spring training camp, he's kind of a tough guy to hold back because 
of the fact that he could develop into a number two or even better guy down the road. Yeah, if Paxson and Walker develop and really you know get close to their ceilings, that could be a terrifyingly good rotation by by year's end. Uh, the guy that's going to be catching them, Mike Zunino, you know, he's really uh, he, he's highly thought of when it comes to framing. Uh, I don't know much about the rest of his game. How do the do the pitchers like throwing to them? throwing to him uh how does he call a game is he has he developed in that aspect pretty quickly and and with the bat is it just going to be a slow burn or should we expect things to start uh turning around quickly with uh uh, at the plate well for the first part of your question on how if the pitchers like him and how he handles the game i can only go off what i read in the you know in the papers here Mm -hmm. and the stories and my understanding is that they do uh the it's uh any articles that have been written on zunino and his relationship with the pitching staff have all been in a positive light and you know he he does catch Felix which is very important with the Mariners because Felix's stuff is unworldly and the ball's moving all over the place so you have to be able to handle that and uh, Zunino does Uh, at the plate obviously his rookie campaign last year was uh, hit or miss I mean he hit 22 home runs yay but he hit 199 and <laughs> struck out a whole lot and didn't draw any walks. And so you had to kind of wonder what exactly we have in store for us uh, for, from an offensive standpoint from Zunino. Uh, there was an, actually an article in the Seattle Times today from my uh, good friend Ryan Divish, who covers the Mariners, who uh, wrote about Zunino's attempts this year to try to improve his two-strike approach hit the ball to the opposite field, put the ball in play more often, and how you know we're only a few weeks into a spring training schedule, and spring training stats don't mean anything, of course. But mm-hmm. uh, so far, it looks like, uh, to his eye, that, that Zunino has actually improved in some of these areas at the plate. And you know if he can hit 20 to 25 home runs and just get his average up to 230, being a decent defensive catcher, all right, you, know, you, have, a, you have a player here that's going to have a nice major league career. We've talked about uh, Taiwan Walker's kind of star uh, fading in the sense that uh, he he was such a high prospect and he, he's failed to live up to the hype as of yet. Uh, obviously, he has a good chance to do that this year. Another guy who was a pretty big time prospect is Logan Morrison, not with, not in Seattle but in Miami, and uh, he's he's really battled a lot of injuries and just been up and down. And the last few years, just he hasn't really been able to stay on the field or produce when he was on the field. Did, what are what do the Mariners think they can get from him? Can is is what he does just kind of gravy for them, or or can he be kind of a maybe not impact, but but a pretty big part of this offense? I think they're counting on. Morrison a lot right now and this might be an area of a little bit of concern for Mariners fans because of the very things you mentioned you just can't rely on him to be able to play in the majority of the games because injury problems have been so prevalent for him over the years but last year in the second half uh, after the all-star break he hit 284 had an OPS uh, just a shade under 800 and I think that's the Logan Morrison that the Mariners are hoping to see this year, and they're hoping to see him do it for 140-plus games. And they are, there's not much in the way of a backup plan, I don't think, uh, right now for the Mariners. So they're really hoping that, that that Logan Morrison is healthy and is able to perform like he did in the second half last year. Because he's a, he's a key player for him right now. First base is kind of an empty spot uh, for now. They have some names down the pipeline. Uh, 
DJ Peterson was their first round draft pick in 2013. I believe he's going to open this season in AAA. He's listed as a third baseman, but he's not going to play third base for the Mariners because of Kyle Seager. So he's going to start shifting over to first base a bit for more and more reps over there in the minors this year. He's a potential uh, answer down the road if Morrison is is injured or or has uh, troubles in the big leagues. But Peterson's not ready right now, so he's not ready to go at the beginning of the year. So they're uh, they need Morrison to produce, and then they also have Jesus Montero. And uh, not joking here at all, the man lost forty to forty five pounds in the off season and got his body back in shape. So maybe he'll produce something after all of this time who knows he did just get option to triple a the other day so he's definitely going to start the season in tacoma but if he can find that bat that made him such a prospect uh, when he was in the yankee system and and you know maybe being in shape will help his mobility at first base and his defensive skills over there maybe maybe he's not a lost cause maybe he'll be able to help someday uh lloyd mcclendon you know i i feel like he's one of those guys that i i I guess a lot of people weren't really sure if he'd ever get that second chance, and and here he is yeah. in Seattle. And w- what type of manager is he? Has he l- did he learn anything from his his time in Pittsburgh, where he, where he kind of had to change the way he does things? Is he more of a player's manager? I mean, what what do we know about him? He is uh, the the two things that stand out to me, kind of watching him from afar, being the AAA announcer. I'm not with Lloyd McClendon mm-hmm. on a daily basis, but. You know, I talked to players who get sent down who, you know, who who were with him in Seattle during the season and then, of course, follow the team through the media. And two things jump out at me right away on him was, first of all, the players seemed to like him. Uh, the, even the guys who got sent to AAA in the middle of the season, you know, a player gets sent down from the big leagues, he's not usually very happy. But if you ask him about McClendon, even off the record, they'll usually say, yeah, I like Lloyd. You know, he's honest and, uh, you know, he's a good communicator, so... Uh, that's a real positive. And then the other thing is he's kind of fiery. He, uh, he's not uh, just a, an ordinary, you know, uh, a, a guy who, who's never going to raise his voice or, or get into a situation. Uh, he, he's kind of fiery. He's, uh, you know, he had the famous, when he was managing the Pirates, he had a famous blowout involving oh, yeah. Rowan second base that you can find on YouTube. And you know, they spent those one. years. That he spent those years as a coach for Jim Leland, who is a fiery guy. And the Clendon, if uh, if he's upset, he'll get out there and fight for his team, his team uh, with the umpires. And then in media sessions after games, after bad losses, he's not afraid to to say things that you know are, are direct and to the point that aren't necessarily the, the you know uh, the uh, kind of indirect way of dealing with the media that some managers use. Uh, you know, m- my normal last question is, uh, what are you most looking forward to covering? Uh, and, but since you, you're going to be calling the Rainiers all all season, as you have, uh, what was – which players uh, intrigued you the most last year that you, uh, that you caught? And uh, who are you most looking forward to uh, getting a chance uh, to watch this year? Well, uh, from my AAA perspective, I think that uh... – uh, in terms of guys who are going to have an impact in the major leagues this year or could, or could potentially have an impact, uh, ta- watching Taiwan Walker and how his season develops, assuming that he makes the big league team, is going to be something that's fun for me to watch every five days because I think there's star potential there if uh, you know if things break his way. If he's 100% healthy, which he is right now in spring training camp, 
if he gets the opportunity to be the fifth starter, I think there's a chance for him to really take off this year. And then uh, Carson Smith, who I mentioned earlier, is uh, a right-hand reliever who may have closer uh, stuff down the road. Of course, he'll break in in a more limited role than that. But watching to see how he does in the major leagues will be fun to follow this year. Uh, Another name for Mariners fans to follow this year, uh, looking at AAA Tacoma, is they had a shortstop come up from AA to AAA late last year, mid-August. His name is Cattell Marte, and uh, he is young. He's going to be 21 this year. He's a switch-hitting shortstop, has some gap power, can steal bases, uh, good range at shortstop, pretty strong arm, and he'll be the everyday shortstop but in AAA this year. So, you know, at the big leagues, you have Brad Miller. The jury's still out on him. And then there's Chris Taylor, who just had an injury. He's going to be out till the beginning of May. Uh, and so Cattell Marte is very much in the mix there. Not initially, but down the road, and uh, we'll get a chance to watch him every day in Tacoma this season. Uh, Mike, before I let you go, why don't you let the listeners know where they can find you on Twitter or any other social media you may use, and uh, I guess where they can listen to you. All right. Uh, Well, uh, I'm the broadcaster for the Tacoma Rainiers, Pacific Coast League affiliate of the Mariners, and uh, our games are broadcast on 8.50 a.m. in Tacoma, and they stream online uh, via the Tacoma Rainiers website, which is TacomaRainiers.com. And then I'm on Twitter, at KurtoWorld, and you have to be prepared for angry Cal basketball tweets if you follow that account, so my apologies in advance. Oh, Cal basketball, man. Okay, now I don't feel as bad for being an Illinois fan, because you guys, it's been a while since you guys have been have been uh, relevant. Easy, to... <laughs> easy, easy. Because I do remember good Cal years. I remember Jason <laughs> Kidd. And, yeah, that's and, when I was in school. <laughs> yeah, th- those were good years. I remember them getting knocked out in the first round when I had them winning it all, too, so that hurts. Uh, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I recall that as well. <laughs> but uh, thanks so much for your time, Mike. I really appreciate it. That's Mike Curdo, voice of the Tacoma Rainiers. I'm Sahadev Sharma. You can follow me on Twitter at Sahadev Sharma. Mike, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Take care. All right. No problem. All right. That's it for the Mariners Preview Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can send us emails for tomorrow's listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes and support our sponsor, the Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow with listener emails. Jack Serenjic, Jack Terencic cover covets. Power try hitters. It. Try it again. Try it again. Try it again. <laughs> I don't know <laughs>